struggle of being female is that you're constantly objectified, discredited for anything you do because you're female. We'll just hook arms? Can we just like... Nope. Just because you're a girl gives men the right to grope you, do what they want. Amy, stop. Because they're selfish and exploitative. Just chill out. A lot of guys don't understand that most forms of abuse are perpetuated by people that you trust. And people don't get it. I can't even tell what's real anymore. You are listening to the Horrible Imaginings podcast, the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we attempt to understand the misunderstood and destigmatize the stigmatized. Your hosts are Miguel Rodriguez and Angela Englertz. Hello, listeners of the Horrible Imaginings podcast, formerly the Monster Island Resort podcast. We are the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival and also... We are programmers at the Digital Gym Cinema here in San Diego, California, where currently there is playing a film called Felt. Now, this film is a film that kind of defies genre and also defies categorization in a lot of ways. It's won some awards. It was highly regarded at Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas, including a Best Actress Award for Amy Everson, who not only is a lead actor in it, but also the writer and uh, and contributed a lot to the creation of the film Felt. Now, I don't want to talk too much about this film, but I will say that Felt is a film about a young woman, and let's just say that she opens the film by saying the line, my life is a fucking nightmare which is a pretty strong announcement to make at the beginning of a film. The character's name is Amy, and in the film she is apparently dealing with a trauma of some undisclosed type. And throughout the film she deals with this trauma in a variety of eccentric ways that some of her friends find off-putting. I don't want to say too much else other than to say that Her forays into this escape world and her defense mechanisms leads her on a pretty uh, intense path. And the film, at times, can be disarmingly whimsical, but always with a sense of unease and discomfort with what this character is going through. It's playing at Digital Gym Cinema here in San Diego one night left on Thursday at 7 p.m., And so I wanted to get this podcast online to hopefully convince some of you to go and see it. And also, at the end of this episode, you'll hear a list of other cities where it's playing at your own hometown. So look for a local listing near you. 
I decided to talk to the director. We've got Jason Banker and Amy Everson. And also joining me is my co-host, Angela Englert. Angela, what did you think of Felt? I have to say, I really liked it. I don't like good things. <laughs> I don't like things that are here to tell me something. Yeah. I don't a didactic film I don't like. Anything with Oscar caliber written on it, you know, just because I I, I don't know. I like my revelations from Coleman Francis. I like genuine emotion. <laughs> and yes. I was just really impressed with this. And I can see people, you know, I've read a few reviews of it. And, you know, some people are like all up ons and there are others who are like, this is way heavy handed. Come on. And watching it again i guess i can i can see that but it just clicked for me yeah no it does i think it's going to depend on on who the audience member is of course another really interesting thing about this movie is that you don't know what affected her exactly every a lot of it is kept in the dark the camera comes away from that yeah that's completely against american filmmaking everything <laughs> i know yeah, and for reasons that the box office would indicate. I mean, like, this is not a popular or enjoyable thing for a filmmaker to do to an audience. I love it. I think that it's great. But a lot, of, it seems to be a lot of people's main complaint is the ambiguity as well as the didacticism. But but mo mostly, I think, the ambiguity. It's a shame. I it makes me want to, you know, parse more why I don't why it doesn't strike me that way but yeah yeah me too but i i mean mostly i want to get it from them so well yeah <laughs> it feels strange to um look at it as a conventional horror movie in any way but well it's not it's totally just, unconventional <laughs> well yeah but if you changed it just a little bit it could be yeah and i think billing it as a horror film kind of subverts it a little bit yeah <laughs> or, and i think it also subverts people's expectations of the genre which is something i appreciate yeah it's true i think the whole thing feels like something that should be on ifc yeah oh no absolutely yeah it, and that's why i bring up the mumblecore thing which it, it, the way they shoot it is um and the way it's presented is counter to what happens and uh it's an interesting choice and i think it, it that is what works best well you there's know. that you don't, the camera is like not omniscient at all it's it's like you know if the camera is god it's like god is kind of drunk and maybe on some <laughs> and occasionally becomes lucid and sees some things and then you know passes out in a stupor again uh, yeah you know the the it's... passage of time is completely fucked up like Suddenly, you know, you have no idea what the passage of time is like. You're you're left with little tiny puzzle pieces, and you have to infer a lot as to how they're developing, and you know how close they actually are, and how that woman feels about her, and all that kind of stuff. None of it is explicit at all, or or even shown. Amy Everson, you know, she's never acted before. I know, and I thought she was really good. Yeah, she won the Best Actress Award at Fantastic Fest for this. She deserved it. Mm -hmm. When I was rewatching today, just just the way that she had these unbidden, hesitating little smiles of actual joy. That was some Christian Bale shit, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and I think uh, some of her performances that were more understated were some of the best ones. Like, the, there's a scene where she's receiving from one of her friends what could potentially be bad news and 
You know, mm-hmm. she just sits looking down quietly and, and any response she has is just more of a, you know, an exhalation of breath rather than a really fully formed line of dialogue. And, you know, it's that awkward feeling that you could you could almost feel like the conflict and the pain in, in her chest. Yeah. yeah. It's really And that really scene was like the one scene where she behaved, you know, quote unquote normally. Yeah. You know, her reactions were really consistent with, you know, I think how most girls would act. In in yeah. that particular system, yeah. Really great movie. I'm glad that she asked me to watch it because, you know, everything that you ask me to watch is worth watching. <laughs> you have broadened my horizons. I'm going to call Amy now. Okay. We'll see if she answers. It's- <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. In the middle of listening to some show tunes. Sweet, good times. It's a yeah. good way to prepare for uh, for a discussion <laughs> on Skype. Yes, indeed. Hello. 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 Jason's not online yet. So, what show tunes were you listening to? Little Shop of Horrors. Hey, great choice. <laughs> yeah. Quality show tunes. Yeah, just getting in the mood. This is perfect, you know. We want to uh, to to get into the emotions, and what does that better than show tunes and Broadway? <laughs> <laughs> My name is Miguel. Hi. Hi. And I'm here with Angela. Hi, Angela. Hello, Miguel. Hello, Amy. Hi, Angela. Yes. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast. My name is Miguel, and and Angela is my esteemed co-host. And for this film, I'm going to bend over backwards because I have to get this recorded and edited and and released tonight because your film is started screening here in San Diego, I think, on Friday, and it's got another week to go. But this, as you may or may not know, San Diego Comic-Con just ended, and yeah, this whole city is a complete disaster during that event. right so <laughs> i can imagine yeah wolverine what else you got <laughs> just wolverine just it's just 130,000 wolverines that's all it is <laughs> insane and awesome yeah it's a it's the entire population of a of a middle-sized midwest town in one building Anyway, let's talk about felt. The first thing I wanted to ask, and hopefully this isn't a question you get too often, but I suspect it may be, is uh, about the ambiguity. This is one of the least omniscient cameras. Angela used the term predator angles a bit, which I thought was appropriate, but it's one of the least omniscient cameras I've seen in a while. Over this conversation, I hope we'll attempt not to give too many story elements away, but, you know, the passage of time can be a little ambiguous. Um, sometimes dialogue scenes seem like they're continuing from conversations that may have happened in the past or off camera. So I, the big question I have is, how did you decide when writing and, and storyboarding and whatnot, what to show and what not to show? Yeah, I mean, I think we just started shooting. I mean, that was kind of the way that I do it is I just like start documenting. And I'm not really sure what is going to be in the film and what isn't. And actually, I never even know if the film is going to happen because it may not, you know, it may not be interesting. We may shoot a bunch of stuff and it may not work as a film. It's all up in the air pretty much the whole time. Right. There was no scripting. There was actually no writing, no storyboarding. Really, the disjointed kind of narrative is because it was just a long shot, just 
banker with his camera shooting just everything that was happening and us improvising and just getting a lot of footage and then piecing it together. But I think it lends to the storytelling because it's kind of disorienting and gives a sense of dissociation, which lends itself to the trauma of the character as well. I guess that's what it gives it is kind of almost documentary feel is, is, is you're filming it. It sounds like you're filming it like a, a documentary where you just film what's happening as it's happening. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, it, you know, I always like to start that way, start from reality, start from what's really going on. And also, you know, it's a process of learning about my actors as well. So it works on a couple levels. And also, too, I mean, I, I personally like shooting where I don't know what is going to happen in the scene, potentially, you know? I mean, sometimes it's good to know you have to know what you're going to do. But sometimes it's nice to just go out with a camera and let things happen and be really surprised with what you get. Do you have a list of, you know, certain things you know you want to get to by the time the scene is finished shooting? I guess the way I've been kind of describing it is doing half of the film with having no plan. And then once you get halfway through and you you kind of realize what the film should be, like the film kind of in a way tells you what it should be by the act of doing it. And then you specifically finish it, um, you know, in a way that's compelling and makes sense and also complements what's already been shot. So, you know, it's like, a, it's basically finding a balance between what's really happening and then a, a fiction. Uh, this probably is more for Amy, but uh, you know, <laughs> your character, Amy is quite eccentric. And so can you talk about bringing her to life, but balancing that eccentricity with, you know, the real possibility of, maybe taking it too over the top or campy? Um, I think for me, a lot of it was just like Banker said, it, it is very documentary like, and it was getting comfortable in front of the camera. And a lot of the personal quirks are actually just me being me. But I think, yeah, there is an element of performance there as well. Well, I mean, I think we kind of shaped, I mean, because I was, you know, my kind of thing is to work with real people and then push them essentially to their breaking point where they're just like, no, that's like insane. We're like, that's a dumb idea. Like, let's, you know, and we kind of find this line because I think it needs to be amped up, you know, and that's kind of what I'm into is like working with reality, but pushing it towards this fiction that, you know, you have to find the line where it's like, okay, that's too far or that's feels good and me and Amy kind of worked through that together so it was a process of like you know me first figuring out who she is because I immediately was really interested in what was going on with her when I met her she was such a character already so you know if anything it was just kind of capturing that and letting her be her without screwing that up. Yeah, there's a contrast there with her and, and a lot of her friends who people would say, quote unquote, more normal or less eccentric, I'll say, than than that character is, than Amy's character is. And so, you, you know, there, there's such a contrast between Amy and her friends that uh, for me, it seemed to hint at a time maybe in the past where Amy might have been more reserved or a little less eccentric to where those friendships maybe first built 
those characters seem to be maybe the eyes of the audience where, you know, we empathize with Amy and whatever may have happened to her, but, you know, her friends are put off and sometimes driven away by her outlandish behavior. I was wondering, like, was that feeling intended for the audience to feel as well, this kind of conflict between empathy and also being made a little uncomfortable by, you know, okay, that's a little bit out there. Can you talk about how creating that character might be a challenge, the balance between empathy and discomfort? Really, the friends that I brought in to kind of work opposite Amy were, I did want to find somebody who would be the counterbalance, like somebody who could be the eyes of the audience who would say, what are you doing? Like, what is going on? Because, you know, it was pretty extreme, but Amy didn't necessarily have anybody around her like that so that was a fictional thing added in just to kind of give a sense of a balance in the film so that it wasn't just like her going through the film unchecked at all so I wanted there to be a conflict at the beginning Mm -hmm. and that was through her friends which didn't exist in reality so we we just created that yeah most of my friends embraced my eccentricity and kind of joined me and being weird so (laughs) yeah we had to (laughs) seek those people out that's not to say that I actually I mean there are fictional elements to this character I'm much I don't know how am I in real life thinker you know I was just surprised by the fact that you did have so many friends that were totally on board for the craziness and I was looking for somebody who could be the counterbalance to that and that's why when I couldn't find them I had to create them Personally, I love people that are nuts. You know, I think I think I prefer to be around people that are a little bit crazy. It's just more interesting. But I think for an audience, you need to give them a little bit of maybe a little bit of a counterbalance to just weird people. You know, there has to be a dialogue about what they're doing, why they're being weird. Even in my my first film Toad Road, one of the characters I I made him kind of opposite to what all of his friends were doing. And they make fun of him at one point for not going along with their craziness. So, I mean, I don't know. I always feel like it's good. It's a good story thing just to have a little bit of dramatic tension there. Okay. Speaking of non-fictional elements, um, you know, one of the things the film's not particularly ambiguous about is the portrayal of some of the toxic... uh, often accepted aspects of male-female relationships. And, you know, you see that with Amy's OkCupid date and that Rohypnol conversation when they go on her friend's date, the double date, with her date who's extremely hostile to Amy, the photography session later on. How did you approach these um, sort of set pieces, particularly given that you're doing this sort of improvised thing and finding the story as you're going? What did you want to achieve at this point when you were shooting or had you gotten that far along? Well, we were trying to find them naturally. And we did find like the very first one that you see with a group of Australian guys was Mm -hmm. a naturally occurring thing. And I actually wanted the whole film to like to be these things that we would find naturally. But I mean, we had a couple like that, but when the cameras were on guys, you know, they get a little, they're they're obviously tone it down a bit. So we needed things to be a little bit more amped up. So we did, you know, I brought in uh, an actor for the bar scene. And then one of the um, Amy's friend, uh, Lana in the film, 
her friend Tony came out and did a scene with like the double date scene. So it was it was really tough to find people that wanted to do this, honestly, because even in San Francisco, me and Amy went out. Well, we actually went out on some dates that she had kind of gotten on OkCupid. And we went on the date with a camera and we actually we got a couple like decent ones, but then the people wouldn't sign off on it. I don't know. It was this process of like trying to get the real thing and then needing to bring in actors and people who are are actually willing to kind of look like jerks on camera, which wasn't easy. So that's fascinating. Yeah. I'm certain I've seen episodes of Eliminate that you guys could have mined for for some potential. I was going to ask how much of this was drawn from life since, you know, these scenes were so effective and naturalistic. And now I know <laughs> they're absolutely drawn from life. But there's mm-hmm. so much more that we wanted to add into the film of much worse behavior, but it's really hard to get anybody to actually sign off on being caught on camera acting the way that most people really do act in real life. And then kind of getting actors was difficult too. So we just picked a few of what we could get. But the thing is, some people interpret what they see in the film as like, well, you guys just kind of cherry pick these specific scenes or you guys stage these scenes. But it's like, no, we... Like, as a woman, I've encountered these kinds of people, like, multiple times a day, and um, it's not really contrived at all. And so, but it was a challenge to actually get it on camera with Banker present and stuff. Amy had this story of, like, seeing um, a guy masturbating at a bus stop. We were going to, we wanted to really pull that off, but we just couldn't find anybody to do it. But that was something that, you yeah, know. Yeah, walk down the street, it's much easier to find a guy masturbating at a bus stop. Like, it's just. <laughs> but you can't just film him and put him in a film. Do that as a role <laughs> is, you know, equally difficult. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, this is coming. Uh, this question was not prepared. It's coming up just because of, of the conversations. I, I want to just get your your perspectives on why you think just hearing these narratives is so difficult for people to believe. Like Amy, you're talking about, uh, you know, I see this happen several times a day. And I know that most women I know and all the, you know, my friends experience similar things so often yet, you know, these narratives are so pervasive and people still deny them. I don't know. I don't understand why they're so deniable. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to understand that perspective, too, because I I see it. And I guess in speaking to my male partner, he says, like, yeah, it's not on his radar. It's just he wasn't socialized to really pick up on these threats that women face since childhood of being sexualized or being having predatory behavior encroached on them or whatnot. It's just, and in male culture also, like men don't realize that the things that they think are jokes or just kind of friendly behavior can also seem very threatening to women because of their experiences. And so, yeah, I can't speak to why people deny widespread sexism and the culture that creates a hostile environment for women I 
because for me it's very evident. But um, I don't know. I mean, maybe this would be a better topic for Banker to take. Yeah, actually, I was I was gonna ask Jason Banker <laughs> about. Oh, yeah, sorry, I called him Banker. <laughs> <laughs> Jason. Uh, about yeah, about your. Jason's pers- fine. Jason called yeah. me a banker. Uh, <laughs> um. You know, you're working on this film as director, and and obviously you have your own perspective, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, I do stuff all the time that's probably inappropriate, you know? It's like, guys don't get it. And so with Amy, she would call me out on all the stuff, and I'd be like, I, but, like, I wasn't, you know, it's like, it's so ingrained that you can just kind of speak a certain way, and, like, it's just, yeah, it's kind of a cultural thing where, you know, I don't know, I'm, like, almost 40, so it's like... I'm pretty old at this point and it's like there's a certain thing that I grew up with that you just feel you can say and it was at at times it was tough because Amy knew that I didn't fully grasp all of the things that this film should be doing and that to me was also part of the process of making this is just also educating myself and kind of working with somebody who has been through this stuff and has a very specific perspective and for me to allow her to kind of present it the right way you know and so I always would allow her to if I was completely wrong she would just tell me she's like oh that's stupid you know let's not let's do this this way and this would be better and so put my foot in my mouth a lot of times on this so I (laughs) I'm by no means one to speak on that either I'm sure well, I think it's interesting that this film gets billed, and even your PR person contacting me about this film, builds it as a horror film. And in a lot of ways, it, it is. It's a very unconventional for that genre. But part of the horror for me as a viewer and as someone who thinks about your film after I watch it is the horror of this denial of a whole people's narrative, this just absolute, almost like uh, intentional ignorance that people have is pretty horrific, and that's a different way to think of horror, and it's one of the reasons I appreciated the film. Well, part of the process of filming was kind of this, I, I think it lent itself to the film that Jason had a very different perspective, because the process of filming was me trying to show him what my life looked like, and show him what my experiences were which weren't evident to him. And so the conversation that I was having with him on screen is the conversation that translates to the audience of like, well, this is what reality is that's denied with the widespread denial of this rape culture, as we call it. The conversation I was having with Jason of like showing him what what the experiences were. And I, yeah, I, I do see that that's the element of horror for a lot of women is just kind of living in a predatory and hostile environment that denies their reality and I hope that translates though on the flip side there are people who view it as Amy being the predator and the monster and in a sense she does become the monster through the course of the film yeah without giving too much away Yeah, I, uh, I know Angela wants to ask something, but I just have to say that the soundscape of tweeting birds in the park is lending a real ambiance <laughs> oh, to this yeah. conversation. I mean, it's like pretty noisy here. Hopefully that's not... Uh... No, you sound great. I, I, I just barely hear oh, like, okay, birds yeah. tweeting and it's uh, got this Snow White <laughs> quality. To it. That is true. I don't know. It's got a great 
cinema verite aspect to it. It's kind of cool. All right. I did want to ask before we get completely off of the of the subject of male-female relationships. Through the course of the film, Amy eventually achieves with Kenny a arguably constructive relationship. And I think most people would recognize Kenny as a, you know, quote-unquote good guy without giving too much away. <laughs> How did you guys approach juxtaposing this character with Amy and also Amy's alter ego? Kentucker Oddly is the guy playing Kenny, and I had wanted to work with him um, on this project from the beginning. So I knew at some point that I was going to pull him in. He's an amazing actor. Um, he always plays these kind of like emo roles, for lack of a better way to describe it. But he's just this really kind of sweet guy. And I thought in the context of the film, Amy needed somebody who would be able to win her over. And so, you know, we were open to a couple of different things happening. And I think I always cast people based on who they are and I like them to play who they are in the film. So the relationship, the way that it developed was very much him being who he was and, and her playing into that. And, you know, they kind of met on the shoot and almost the way that the film goes, it's like their dates as they're meeting, like the first date where they go out is like actually the first night that we hung out. So it's like, it was this very natural thing that was going to, you know, explode at some point. So, I mean, yeah, without giving away the, the film, I, that's kind of how that went, if that answers half of it. One can definitely see how his performance both um, anchors Amy's character and the audience for that portion of the film the catalytic trauma that Amy experiences, which sets off this whole film, is never explicitly stated. As this is some key information, uh, can you elaborate a little on the decision to keep that a secret? And um, was it also perhaps a comment on per the way other films treat this kind of material? I think originally it was our idea to actually explore the specifics or just the range of abuse that my character and myself have gone through. Yeah, originally we had we had discussed how to how we were going to approach the film and uh -uh, we lost him. Oh, we lost him. I thought I just... saw his name flash up but then he went away. All right, now we just wait and pray. Gods of Skype. I'll He's sacrifice a goat. Answer too. <laughs> I know it was so there almost. <laughs> it was giving me time to think. <laughs> huh? He's not connecting. Yeah, he might have lost, and it's difficult to keep a connection. Oh, call failed. Well, I can answer that question. Of course, this is this is your show now. Let's go for it. Yeah, it's too bad because he would have had some great things to say but um as far as the ambiguity of the specific events i think you know originally we did workshop the idea to actually address specific events but we just couldn't really pull it off without it being really exploitative and then it actually turned out to be a blessing that we couldn't figure out how to really address the specificity because it's actually not one specific event it's 
a lifetime. It's an accumulation of events, and it lends to the universal story of the female experience as well. Because in reality, for myself, it's not one event. It's several. And just showing the specific events is just having to reenact those scenes in itself would be inherently triggering, but also it would be a disservice to the audience and myself because we should be able to believe women's experiences and treat the subject of sexual trauma sensitively without having to see it. And I think in a lot of media, it's exploited as a cheap plot device without exploring the context and the culture that breeds sexual violence and the consequences, which is trauma and dissociation and a lifetime of being haunted. And so it's also good that we don't dignify the specifics and just believe like, yeah, this is the experience. Do you think that by focusing on one specific event, it would have led to what tends to happen where people think of, like, let's say a sexual assault as a kind of one-time monster that happens in the shadows or an alleyway, and, and that's part of why we don't see this kind of thing as pervasive as it is? Yeah, absolutely. And that is what I wanted to address. And that was the conversation that I was having with Banker in the process of shooting was like, he wanted to explore specifics. And it was like, well, it's not just one thing. And it's not just one bad relationship or not just one person. It's not a boogeyman in the dark shadows. It's This is something that even the everyman has. I say so much in the film that, yeah, it's perpetrated by the people you trust and that even the good guys that we think that are good just have in them this sense of sexual entitlement and I want to dispel the myth that it's not just this big bad wolf. Like we we see the monster of the perpetrator that is the catalyst of this. It's actually a lifetime of pain and abuse. And I think one insight into this is it's not just one thing that led to this. This is death by a thousand needle jabs. And it's kind of a metaphor of... Um, needle felting where you stab it multiple times until it takes shape and this is ultimately the shape that Amy has taken is through a thousand a million stabs she's kind of become a monster herself and I think it, it's safe now to to mention for anyone listening that the needle felting that that Amy's talking about right now is specifically shown in the film it is a an artistic process through which Amy creates these various uh, felt sculptures or costumes or artistic pieces that require threading a or stabbing a needle through the felt over and over and over again right and it's expensive. I think that was Jason trying to come back. <laughs> come back. I need you. <laughs> well, You're doing great. 
Thank you. Absolutely. This is absolute gold. And I am just sitting here wrapped and I am nodding so much. And like, <laughs> oh, since we don't have Jason yet, I did want to ask you more about your own artwork because you both have talked about, you know, how much of this film was sort of germinated from life and experience and also, you know, your artwork, your technique and things that you've done. So can you tell us more about that and how that all evolved? Yeah, what initially provoked Banker to work with me was that I had these women in man suits, these costumes with genitals sewn in that I kind of wore as a party trick sometimes. And um, I mean, it originally the naked man suit, as I call it, was born out of theme party that I attended where the theme was dress up as your favorite villain or the ultimate villain. And my idea was the ultimate villain would be a naked man or there's nothing as dangerous or threatening as a naked man. And um, that and then I turned it into a Silence of the Lambs reference with Buffalo Bill, but that was my costume. And then I had this naked man suit and then I would wear it under a skirt sometimes just so I could wear a short skirt. And if any wandering eyes crept up my skirt, they would have a nice little surprise. And um, <laughs> <That is> brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I introduced to some of these costumes to Banker and then he was intrigued and was like, well, what kind of story can we tell with this? And then we started developing a story based on my reality and my bedroom and my artwork. And I started developing more art to kind of inform the themes in the movie. And that's where I made like a full body skin suit as well. Yeah, and even needle felting I picked up during filming kind of to create more stuff to inform the themes of the movie. How many more sculptures and, and pieces of artwork did you make specifically for the film? Um, well, the needle felting I just picked up. Well, I mean, it wasn't specifically for the film. I was just, I just started making stuff mm. for while we were shooting and you know fetal hitler like is just something that i made <laughs> and since i had it like i was just like well what? how just... could you not put that in yeah yeah and stuff you could probably like that. do really well on etsy with those yeah. <laughs> i would buy fetal hitler in a heartbeat so that it's just it takes a lot of time to yeah needle felt it's a lot of work but specifically for the film was like the full skin suit and the man mask and stuff because um, we wanted to show kind of a progression of the costumes becoming more elaborate. Was there a, this isn't really a prepared question, but the red hooded sweatshirt, mm -hmm. was that a deliberate choice or was that just um, sort of a circumstance? It wasn't a deliberate choice for filming because I've always worn a red hoodie <laughs> um, and it's just my wardrobe and I've had it for maybe 15 years. I mean, initially I wanted a red hoodie because I was inspired by Elliot from E.T. <laughs> there have been comparisons to the film Hard Candy, which I love and which I welcome because... 
Yeah, I mean, I think the red hoodie works in kind of the scene in the forest where Kenny is in this woodsman type shirt and I'm more like a little red riding hood, but um, it wasn't actually intentional. It's just Mm -hmm. part of my wardrobe and I still wear it every day. God made it happen. Yeah. (laughs) It looks great. If you've had that for 15 years, you must use cheer or something. (laughs) Not that specific one. I I have an older one that's... Passed along. I'm so literal. No, they fixed it in color correction in post. (laughs) (laughs) Not, it's not quite that old, but yeah. I mean, the original inspiration was ET. I have to admit. (laughs) Wow, that's going. I'm going to have to watch the film again and have that as a reference, and (laughs) it'd be a whole revisioning about the suits and the alter ego. I was interested that Amy putting on the alter ego, the aspects of the alter ego, it seemed to be at once an act of self-fashioning, but also of self-annihilation. The act of putting on the mask, a very sort of asphyxiating scene a couple times, distorts her face, obscures her face. So can you talk more about this transformation. You've indicated that this was sort of a process that you guys came up with while you were filming. So did you have a predetermined end when you were thinking about the transformation or not? Or were there a couple of different ways it could go? Yeah, I think there were a couple ways it could go. And it was just an ongoing process of exploration while we were shooting of where we wanted to take the story and there were many different incarnations as well but I think ultimately in the process of shooting we kind of figured you know with these costumes that it should evolve and transform into until Amy takes it to the ultimate level and without giving too much away it is a deliberate escalation of transformation and it is a way of hiding and a, a camouflage for herself and erasing the part of her which has caused her pain, which is her womanhood, and imbuing herself with the ultimate symbol of power, which she sees as the penis. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it is both. She calls it her superpower in the film. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's her superhero costume. And, yeah, it it is a warped sense of power, however, because, yeah, ultimately she's being self-destructive and it's not a healthy alternative to what she feels is a life of victimization. She wants to take power, but in turn, it kind of wrecks havoc on her life. Well, it also is interesting that you called the naked man suit the ultimate villain Right. But then this alter ego is referred to as a superhero. It's like uh, conjoining the idea of the hero and villain a little bit. Yeah, it's it's kind of an anti-hero. Yeah, it can be two sides of the same coin. I think it should be addressed that she isn't really a hero because a hero would transcend evil and transcend the villains. But 
Amy in the movie ultimately becomes what she's fighting, the monster that she's supposedly fighting. And it's not because she turns violent, but because she literally embodies the idea of this toxic masculinity. I think we'll make this the last one is mm-hmm. the ending not being rosy happy. One could maybe misinterpret that as being nihilistic. And, uh, you know, the problem with nihilism or cynicism being that, you know, why bother changing things if anything's just going to go to crap in the end? Uh, So from your perspective, especially as an artist and having worked on this film, uh, what do you think can be the benefits of having an ending not be happy, but, but with ending with something like felt ended? There have been interpretations that have heralded the ending as something triumphant, but I absolutely agree with you that it's not a happy ending and it is very cynical and nihilistic even. I think the benefit of that, that it lets the audience bring their own interpretations and feelings to the ending and not dismiss the actual context and the culture that breeds this kind of tragedy and dismiss it as well this movie had a happy ending so everything's okay it's like no things are not okay and this is not the solution but we need to have conversations and I hope it spurs conversation and I mean having an unhappy ending wasn't intentional for that purpose on my behalf but more because where I was at my life, I didn't see a happy ending for myself. And my life was full of tragedy, and I didn't know how to create anything but tragedy. But it's through the process of the film and talking about it and seeing the kind of universal, greater picture of the issues and talking about it with people that I've been able to process it and addressing the issues of misogyny and sexual assault and rape culture has helped me heal and I hope the conversations continue and I think that is the goal of the film if anything. I don't know what else to say other than I think that obviously the film is having conversations one way or the other Um, It's kickstarting these conversations. Ours is just one more example of those. But Amy Everson, I want to thank you for talking about this film. Uh, I know it must not have been the easiest film to make. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for the conversation. And yeah, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness behind the questions and being able to talk about it. So these weren't boring, repeated questions? No, absolutely not. It's always great to have like engaged conversations. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, We'll get this online soon. And Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll get lots of people out to the theater here in San Diego. But I'll mention also where it might be playing theatrically across uh, the U.S., because I know you've got a couple of other dates coming up. Yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> Good. We love it. We will promote it as much as we can. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I never know how it's going to resonate or piss people off or whatever. So it's Well, if it doesn't piss some people off, it's not doing its job. Yeah. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you guys liked it. Thank you. Thank you. We wouldn't make the show if we didn't really. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to check out what else you guys have podcasted about then. I'll take your recommendations. All right. 
Hooray! Wow. Success. Jason Banker, thank you for joining us when you had. Sorry we <laughs> lost you. <laughs> Sorry we lost you there, but we're going to say goodbye to Amy now. Amy, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank All right. You. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you. Bye. This will be a good one. Oh, yeah. We are still recording. Um, Any final thoughts? We'll final speak. thoughts about this film. <clears throat> Especially, you know, post interview thoughts. Um, sometimes you have an interview and then your, uh, <laughs> your, your opinions of the film change or, or your original assumptions change. One thing that I thought while she was explaining their approach to um, not honing in on a first cause for Amy's uh, trauma, it does resonate with me because I am a girl and I always have been and I have experienced this all my life. I suspect that we're both a little bit older than she is and maybe are a product of the same environment that um, Jason Banker was talking about. You know, Yeah, where... Jason, by the way, almost 40 is not old. I know. It was like... <laughs> <laughs> I digress. <laughs> <laughs> a terrible digress. You know, we come from a, a landscape where the consciousness of issues of gender, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, sexual abuse was not nearly as heightened as it is now. And that's a very good thing for our society. And it's a huge transformation. And when you think about what was common discourse when we were kids or, you know, during the height of the rape revenge films that felt might have some distant ancestry with, I was struck talking about the pervasiveness of, you know, an accumulation of sort of hostile things. And, you know, that's totally valid. But the other thing that she didn't say was... If they had dramatized a first event, it would have not only been about the event, but I think there would have been a natural inclination of the audience to rationalize the event and probably to start looking at Amy as an object rather than sympathizing with her. And we see this in the press constantly. You know, you see that with Bill Cosby's accusers. Yeah. You know, and very recent press, you know, even now after his deposition has been revealed, you know, there's still some people defending him by trying to uh, debunk his accusers and debunking the X factor in any kind of unpleasant situation like this is a natural tendency, a natural social tendency. And I think, you know, in that way, it was a really great decision for them to keep the focus on the general atmosphere of misogyny. I think also on, on your train of thought, if they had a specific event to trigger the trauma, the other thing that had, and this is what, you know, this is what makes the rape revenge films, you know, that gives them their entire impetus is that means that anything that the woman perpetrates at the end is supposed to have some kind of like feeling of release, validation. It's supposed to make, maybe even make you cheer a little bit, like, yeah, get him kind of thing. And I don't, that's obvious, that's not what Felt was going for, too. And that completely would have subverted what appears to be their artistic intention. And also, yeah. you know, definitely what I took away from it because, you know, it is pretty much a wholesale a tragedy from beginning to end. Yeah. 
But it's a great film and everyone should see it. <laughs> All right, let's check out their main site here. Watch trailer, pre-order, theatrical engagements. I have found it. You're the best. You know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> of course, consult your local listings to see when it's screening. But I can tell you that starting in June 26, it did show at the New York IFC Center. That may have been been one screening, but... Uh, it opened in Columbus, Ohio on July 3rd. On July 10th, it opened a lot of places, including San Diego's own digital gym cinema. So I will say that for San Diego residents, unless I get this online now, you have one more chance to see this film on Thursday, July 16th at 7 p.m. One more chance. Thursday, July 16th at 7 p.m. at Digital Gym Cinema in San Diego, California. But on July 10th, it also started in Atlanta, Georgia at Plaza Theater, Chico, California at Pageant Theater, the Cinema Detroit at Detroit, Michigan, which is owned by my friend Paula Guthit. Yes, as you know, as at TCM Party on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the Harris Theater, Salem, Massachusetts at Cinema Salem, and uh, Roxy Theater, of course, in San Francisco, California. Seattle, Washington at Grand Illusion Cinema. On July 11th, it opened in Houston, Texas at Alamo Drafthouse Cinema Vintage Park. July 14th, Winchester, Virginia at Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. One night only, July 14th, tomorrow, folks. The 17th, you can see it in Austin, Texas at Alamo Drafthouse South Lamar. Denver, Colorado at C Film Center? S-I-E Film Center? I'm going to say C. Let's go with C. <laughs> C. C. Los Angeles, California at the Lemley Royal. So those of you in L.A. can see it on the 17th at the Lemley. Ottawa, Ontario in Canada at Mayfair Theater. Phoenix, Arizona at Film Bar. One night only there. July 20th, Philly at the Trocadero. July 29th at Sioux Falls, South Dakota at Indie Events. One night only on July 29th. And then finally, on August 14th in Albuquerque, New Mexico at Guild Cinema. So again, check your local listings, but that's all of them. You can follow them on Twitter at FeltMovie. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at H-I-F-F-S-D. And you can follow Angela where? At Mecca Angela. That's Mecca Angela. <laughs> <laughs> like Mecca Godzilla. Like Mecca Godzilla, only Angela. One day I'm going to create Mecca Angela and take over the world. Oh, wow. Can I get a cut <laughs> of that? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, super good. This is a great film. I'm very excited about this film. All right. Thank you, Angela. Okay. Thank you, Miguel. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. It's a podcast. I'm, Are you uh, at a no, party? I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a shoot, actually. I'm in Bryant Park in New York. Um, I, I, I'm actually shooting some, some stuff. So I was just taking... I didn't realize there's a podcast, so I was just telling um, the people, like the director <laughs> that I'm with, that uh, 
it's a podcast. But anyway, sorry about that. That's okay. No, it, it's cool. I, now, now, part of your next project is going to be on <laughs> the podcast. Be fun. Be 